have a seat. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. It is a delight to be with you today. I love being on the journey with you over Lake. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. You will see that we are jumping into a series, and we're, this series is about our three purposes. Overlake has three purposes, and if you've been around Overlake for any length of time, you're, you're probably somewhat familiar with these three purposes, but even if this is your very first time, hopefully this is not the first mention of the, the purposes I'm making, not the first thought that you might have, because even as you came in the parking lot, you would have seen these purposes on the light posts and in the terms of like some flag banners. They're flag banners, that's redundant. Uh, banners uh, maybe is all that was necessary. And uh, you might have seen that, or as you come, came in the hallway, you might have seen them hanging in our hallway. If you're in the bathroom, you might have seen them in there. They're on our walls. They're even on the handout that you received as you walked in. If you visit our website, they're there. In other words, we're practicing redundancy with these things because they're a big deal. And the purposes of Overlake are love God, love people, and serve the world. Those are our three purposes. They're straight from the Bible. Jesus embodied these, taught about them. So we want to put them into practice. And literally, they shape who we are. They, they provide our marching orders for what it is that we feel like the church should be about. But it's also our posture individually. We believe that, that these are our purposes individually as followers of Jesus, that we are to be in a posture where we're living out our purpose because we believe that's the fullest life that it, we are invited into that Jesus provides for us. And so love God, love people, serve the world. Today I want to talk about loving God. And the, the scripture is filled, and specifically it's filled with commandments, a lot of commandments. And this is a commandment that we are to love God. When Moses receives the Ten Commandments in the desert, uh, the very first commandment, many of you are familiar with this, the first thou shalt or thou shalt not, it, it sounds like this. In Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So God's speaking, he's saying no other gods. This is the first of Ten Commandments. But most scholars, as they analyze all ten, will argue that the other nine are simply aspects of this one. That, that the, the, the command to love God and, and to exclude other gods or, or to reject other gods in favor of worshiping the one true God, that that's actually the commandment. And then the other commandments are simply outworkings of what that commandment might look like as we seek to embody it. So worship God, love God. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. And then we fast forward into the New Testament, and Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers lickety-split. He has an immediate answer to that question. And, and you might think, well, that's no big deal uh, that he knows the answer because he's Jesus. And obviously he would know. He wrote the book. But um, here's the deal. If you look at another passage in the New Testament, there's a scenario where a lawyer is talking to Jesus. And the lawyer asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I have this abundant life that God invites us into? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? How do you read the scriptures? And the lawyer answers with exactly the same answer that Jesus gives as what is the greatest commandment. And here's why I bring that up. I bring it up because I want you to understand that in ed educated Jewish circles, 
in devout Jewish communities, it was known what the greatest commandment was. It was common. It was absolutely a part of the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age in first century uh, Judaism was they knew what the greatest commandment was. And the greatest commandment, as Jesus says, when he's answering the question, is this. I'll just uh, refresh you. Some of you already know this, but let me just refresh you. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So that's what Jesus articulates as the first and greatest commandment. And the reason why it was known, the reason why the lawyer knows it, and everybody who is a, a devout Jew in this first century scenario, why they knew the greatest commandment is because what Jesus was quoting when he answers this is Deuteronomy 6.5. And it was a very famous passage of the Old Testament law the Torah, and what is, is known in Jewish communities as the Shema. And the Shema was, was recited every day, two times a day, in devout Jewish families and communities. The family would gather together in a specific place in the morning and in the evening, and they would recite by memory the Shema. And it was such a big deal that there were rules, kind of uh, practices that were common how they would stand, and the, the specific Hebrew words they would enunciate over, uh, you know, the syllables they would land on even. And sometimes the Jewish children, the practice was they, they were to put the, their palms of their hands over their eyes to prevent themselves from being distracted while they recited the Shema. And the reason why the ritual was a big deal and the reason why the recital was a big deal and the no distractions was a big deal is because the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's a big deal. And so everybody knew it and it was known and it was common. And so the lawyer knows it. He can snap off the answer. Jesus knows it. He can snap off the answer. Of course, he knew a lot of answers, uh, but that was one that, that was uh, fairly common. And I, I bring all this up because it brings me to a moment of confession with you. And, and this is as a pastor. So I've been in the ministry for 25 years. I get paid to read the Bible. I, I'm a professional prayer, okay? I, it's like I'm sponsored to love God. I, I should be that good at it. And, and with, with all of that history and practice and just the reality of who I am as a pastor, I just have to confess that there are many times when I don't love God first, and I'm not loving God best. And, and, and maybe even hours go by, sometimes a, a days where I'm not loving him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and I confess this knowing that he is worthy of my undying devotion, knowing that he is, he is worthy to receive my unhindered praise, my deepest, most ruthless sacrifice. God is worthy to receive. And yet, I, I fail to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I say this, again, even though I know that God is worthy and that God is creator, that God is holy and that God is awesome, God is perfect and God is forgiving and God is love and God is Father and I know I fall short. And when I fall short, oftentimes I do what you do. I begin to reprimand myself. 
come on, man. You can do better than that. Love God. Like, you can do it. Muster up some love. Like, get it. Squeeze it out. Like, dig deep and love God, you know. And uh, I realized that, that when we come at it from that perspective, we're really doing everybody, including God, a total disservice. The, the idea of, of giving a message about loving God as if you should love God more and you ought to love God more and why aren't you loving God more? It's your duty to love God more. We're, we're sort of missing the whole heart of the issue. And I wonder if we can't come at it from a totally different perspective, not of duty. By the way, a few years ago, I, I was summoned to jury duty down in Kent. Raise your hand if you've ever been summoned to jury duty. Anybody received that delightful summons? So I received a summons. It was down in Kent, and I was a little bit freaked out about the traffic, so I did the GPS and made sure that I got there in plenty of time and followed the signs. There were signs about where potential jurors should park, and I was really agitated about getting in the right parking spots. I didn't want to park, you know, in the, in the sheriff's parking spot or some of these other parking spots. I was a little nervous, and so I parked in the right spot, and then I followed the signs in to where the jurors were supposed to gather, but sometimes the signs were a little incomplete, or they weren't, like, spaced out adequately, and I would get anxious. My heart was pounding, and, and finally I got into the right room. It was filled, but silent. And so that only just freaks you out, a room that's filled but just silent. Somebody nods to the wall, and I see, oh, there's more instructions. I have to fill out a bunch of forms. I have to cut myself and give my blood and I, <laughs> urine sample or something. I don't know what it was. But I, I, I did all that I was supposed to do post-haste and, and, you know, filled all that out. And, and what was driving my anxiety was the night before I had contemplated just bailing on jury duty, just skipping it. And I realized, if you look it up, Bailing on jury duty is a jailable offense. So I was really excited to be there that day. I was like sweaty palms excited. Uh, and, and I say all this because I do recognize that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's exactly how you feel today. That you received an unwelcome summons for, for you to be at church today. Maybe that was from a parent or maybe it was from a spouse. Maybe it was from a boyfriend or girlfriend. But however it came, it was an unwelcome summons, and you were uncomfortable already, and so you did the GPS. You want to make sure that traffic didn't, didn't bog you down, and you came into our parking lot, made sure you found a parking spot, although not too hard, and uh, found a parking and then you followed the signs, or at least the flow of traffic, into this room, and I pray somebody made you feel welcome today. I pray that there was a smile and a kind interaction today, because that's our heart. That's, that's who we are. But anyway, if, if you're here, you know what that feels like, right? You were probably thinking right now what I was thinking when I was in that jury duty room. When is the soonest possible instant I can get out of here? And so I just want you to know I was thinking everything I could. I was imagining all kinds of things that I might do to just get myself excused from jury duty. I was thinking, you know, David pretended to be insane to get out of duty and Ulysses pretended to be insane to get out of duty. If I pretend to be insane to get out of jury duty, I'll be in good company, you know. And they gather all of the, the potential jurors in a room, and they begin this process of selection. And the, the lawyer asks everybody this question. He says, I just want to know, just to kind of cut the eyes, how many of you, when you received your summons for jury duty, how many of you felt that it was a burden, that you're not excited to be here today? And almost every hand went up. 
you know, a hundred or so hands immediately go up. And, and then he said, is there anybody here who, when you got the summons for jury duty, that, that you were kind of pleased, that you were kind of interested? Two hands go up. And so he asks, well, tell me your story. He asks one person, and this elderly lady stands up, and she says, all my life I heard stories of America. She's saying this in an Eastern European accent. And immediately I feel myself start to get emotional. And then I start to think, you know what? She's a plant. She's an actress. <laughs> There's no way this is real. All right? All my life, she says, I've heard stories of America. My father would tell me these stories of a country where everyone who is a citizen can vote for who represents them in government. He would tell me stories that it was actually understood that all of the citizens, regardless of economic status, regardless of ethnic background, could participate in upholding justice in their society. And my father never made it to America, but I did. And two years ago, I took the test, and I became a citizen. She says, I am an American. And so when I got the summons for jury duty, I was excited to come. I count it an honor to be here today. And she sat down. Now, the room was silent, but I was changed. Because what began as a burdensome duty had suddenly been revealed as an incredible privilege. What started off as something I wanted to shirk off suddenly became something that I would be honored to do. You see, she had totally flipped the perspective. It was as she completely took the paradigm and body slammed it upside down. And, and that's what I want to do when it comes to loving God. See, I don't want to appeal to your sense of duty. I, I, I don't want to just say, you got to muster more love. You should love God more. You ought to. I, I just want you to begin to understand how much God loves you. Today, I want our discussion to be about realizing the incredible depth of love that God has for you and for me. And so if you're filling in the blanks, the first thing I want to point your attention to is that you and I are created for a relationship of love. We're created for relationship. And if you want to read about this more, read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we see that we're created for relationship with the Father, that he would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with his children, and they were delighting in one another's company there in the garden. And so I want you to think, instead of duty, instead of religion, I want you to think of how newlyweds feel for one another. I want you to think about how best friends feel in one another's company, even mentors and mentees and that beloved relationship that, that is uh, created between mentor and mentee. I want you to think that kind of a framework as you read verses like this, where God says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Or that next verse from Isaiah, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Could you please circle the word everlasting? Everlasting. Everlasting. 
This is why you were created. This is why God designed us, why he made us. It's because he desires a relationship of love with us. And you've heard me often say, Overlake, that, that God desires to have a relationship of love with us that starts now and lasts forever. In other words, it's everlasting. Why? Because that's God's heart for you. God's heart for you, his love for you is everlasting. And you're created for it. You're created to be in relationship with him. The next fill-in is we need to realize the depth of his pursuit for us, for our hearts. You think about many relationships. Many relationships are begun with some pursuit. Uh, I, I was saying it actually is fairly common, maybe even in a dating kind of a scenario. And, and I don't know if it's more often guys. I think it probably is. But, but you see, a lot of times, guys put a lot of energy into pursuit of a relationship. They, they put a lot of energy and creativity and affection into winning a relationship with the object of their affection, right? And there's romance and there's intentionality and there's time carved aside and, and there's a priority placed in the pursuit of relationship. And then often, sadly, when that relationship is won, then there's no more pursuit. It's like, oh, I bagged her. That's cool. That's, and that's tragic. It's a tragic reality, and, and here's why I bring it up, is because Jesus is the opposite. Jesus pursues us, and he pursues us, and he pursues us. You see, before you ever thought to call out his name, he's been lovingly whispering yours. He's the one who takes the initiative again and again and again, pursuing us in love. And the Bible calls his love unfailing, his pursuit unfailing. Exodus 34, 7, God says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin. In Psalm 23, 6, it says, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Please circle the words unfailing love. So now you have the scripture articulating, arguing that God's love for you is everlasting and that the love that he has for you is unfailing. It will not fail. His pursuit will last all the days of your life. This is an incredible picture of God's love. I love how the theologian Frederick Buechner says this. He says, when you contemplate the birth of Jesus... How humbly he arrives. He says this, once we have seen him in a stable, we can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of men. He's wildly pursuing us all the days of our lives. And if you want to see the greatest picture, the greatest image of his pursuit in love of you, you simply need to look at the cross. Because it's at the cross you see his pursuit in love fully revealed. When you see him with his hands pierced, his feet pierced, when you see him with his side rent open and the, the crown of thorns thrust down upon his head, the, the sweat flowing and the, and the blood, and, and you see him 
with the, the ringing scorn of his accusers still reverberating in his ears. And you see him look from that place through the ages into your heart. And in that instant, he says, Father, forgive him. Forgive her. They don't know what they're doing. You see, you want a clear picture of this ridiculous pursuit of God for your heart, and you need look no further than the cross. It's often been said that a thing is valued as much as somebody is willing to pay for it. And so you want to know how much your heart is valued? You want to know how much of worth you are to God, look at the cross, because at the cross, Jesus answers the question, you're worth this much to me. You're worth this sacrifice. You're worth this pursuit. You're worth this humiliation. You're worth this agony. I'll go through hell so you never have to, he says. I'm going to pursue you in love. And we recognize that we are created for a relationship of love, and then we're pursued in love by God incarnate. And the word that I'd love to have you focus on here is a Greek word, the word agape. You might want to write it down somewhere, A-G-A-P-E, agape. In the Greek, in the New Testament, there are four types of love mentioned. Agape is the one type of love that refers specifically to God's love. And if you want to write down a few descriptors of this agape, this concept communicated in the scriptures, it's found in the words unconditional. It's found in the words limitless. You might want to also add everlasting and unfailing. See, this is God's love for you, his agape love for you, the the love communicated clearly in Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross, as he does his work there. And because of his work, we are allowed now to this next truth, we're, we're invited rather to receive the gift of his grace for us. We're invited to receive the gift, the work that he accomplished on the cross. And Romans 5.10 says this, since we were restored to friendship with God by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by his life. I'd love to have you circle the words restored to friendship. Restored to friendship. You see, that is the purpose of God pursuing us through the ages, pursuing us through the cross. It's to restore friendship with God. Because our friendship with him is broken by our own sin, by our own rebellion, by our own iniquity. We've distanced ourselves from the Lord and that friendship is severed. But Jesus restores that friendship with God. Jesus provides that eternal life and that abundant life. And and, and he does this when we receive the gift of his grace. In freedom, right, he allows us to miss out on this gift, but we don't have to. We can receive this gift. We can say yes to this gift. And when we do, when we believe in the work of the cross, when we believe and trust in the person of Jesus, then we receive the gift of his grace. And the Bible says we become children of God. We now become children of God. The scripture says this in John 1:12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when we receive his grace, 
we'll recognize that, yes, we're created for a relationship of love. And, yes, Jesus has pursued us. And now we receive his grace. And it brings us to this next fill-in. We experience his pleasure over us. Because you're his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. And God takes delight in his children. He takes pleasure in his kids. Scripture says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. You know, one of the reasons I'm convinced that God gives us the opportunity to have kids and to raise kids is so we will get a glimpse, a little bit of insight into how God feels about uh, us, how, how he fathers us and how he loves and cares for us. And not always, like all analogies, it can be a broken analogy. But I've, I've seen so many times that, that an experience with my kids shows me God's love for me. And I just want to tell you, and, and for those of you who've been around Overlake for a long time, you know this about me. My role is a dad. I got three kids, and I delight in my kids. I take incredible pleasure in my kids. My, my daughter, Alex, she is, uh, she's running track at the local high school. And last year as a freshman, she was part of the varsity team. They went all the way to state. And this year as a sophomore, she's even breaking some of those records. I mean, let me tell you, my dad's heart is going nuts when I watch her run. And by the way, if you watch, I don't want you to watch her run. But if you ever were to see her run, it's like gliding poetry. She runs the hurdles. It's like watching gazelle. I mean, to me, watching her cross the finish line is like a song that you want to sing louder and louder and louder. It's like Bon Jovi's living on a prayer. That's watching my daughter run track. And then my son, Doozy, who's 11 years old, when he steps on the dance floor with his moves that are ridiculously smooth for an 11-year-old, oh, Man, and he's in flag football right now. Yesterday, he took a reverse around the side, went beast mode all the way to a touchdown, and my heart was bursting. And then there's my son, Caleb. I've shared with you before, he was given the spiritual gift of double personality as a child. I remember my wife and I were going to open house when he was in kindergarten, and we saw this poster on the wall. It was all these kids had, had listed their favorite food. And so, you know, it was Missy, and she likes cereal, and it was Brenda, and she likes mom's spaghetti. And there's Caleb, and he likes dead cow. <laughs> and he had drawn a picture of a cow with the legs up in the air, little crosses on the eyes. About that time, I was trying to teach him about allowance and tithing. We were having the allowance talk, and I said, buddy, it's super simple. It's like this. If you get $10, we want to give Jesus $1. If, if you get 10 quarters, we want to give Jesus one quarter. If you get 10 dimes, we want to give Jesus one dime. And he said, Dad, that totally makes sense to me. And I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah, he, he's got to pave the streets of gold, so he takes the money and turns it into roads. Sure, okay, all right. But I got to tell you, my ki- I delight in my kids. I, they just such great joy I derive from them. The greatest joy of my life just hanging out with my own clan. I, I, sorry, like, like you're cool. My kids are awesome. 
And, and they're not perfect. Please don't get me wrong. They're not perfect, honestly. And, and I don't want you to get this idea that they have to be doing something or performing to, to make me happy. They don't. My kids don't have to do anything to bring me pleasure. Sometimes, like, just being asleep and they bring me pleasure. Sometimes, because they're asleep, they bring me pleasure. But I, I just want you to see that this is a dad who delights in his kids, and yet we have such a hard time seeing God delighting in us. We're just so afraid to actually go to this place where we can see our Father with actual eyes of love and care and grace. You know, we know the scripture says that if we're in Christ, God looks at us with cleansed, right? The lens that he sees us with is that lens of the righteousness of Jesus. And he delights in his son. He delights in his daughter. He delights in his children. And yet, for us, sometimes it feels like heresy to go there. No, no, we say it's far better for us to focus on our failings, far better to focus on our sin. Every time we look in the mirror, we see all the ways we're not good enough, all the ways we're not doing it right, all the ways we're not loving God enough. Meanwhile, he delights in you. Experience his pleasure. Receive his grace. Realize his pursuit. Understand you're created for a relationship of love. And I just would tell you, we don't understand how much God loves us. And the reason why I know we don't understand how much God loves us is because Paul has to pray that we'll understand how much God loves us. But even as he prays that we'll understand, he tells us in his prayer, we won't understand how much God loves us. So look at this scripture right here. So Ephesians 3.18. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What does it do? It surpasses our knowledge, God's love. But that you will know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So in light of this, in light of this love that surpasses our knowledge, in light of the reality we're created for a relationship of love, that God pursues us in love, that we receive his grace in love, that we experience his pleasure and love over us, in light of this, to love God, simply respond to his love. Simply experience it and respond. And the key word that I would use is the word simple. It's just simple. You just take it in and then reflect it back. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine this morning. His name's Sonny Salisbury. And I have mentioned Sonny a few times over the course of, of our time together because Sonny is one of those guys. He's been a mentor for me. He's been a pivotal figure in my life at a, at a, a juncture when I was trying to decide what to do with faith and which direction I wanted to go. Sonny was that shining example. He talks about in Thessalonians that we are to give thanks in all circumstances and be joyful always. And Sonny was that picture of a simple faith lived in love. And I, I, I just want to tell you, it was, it was so delightful. I was on his staff for two years. I worked at, he was at this camp in uh, the mountains of Washington 
While I was there, by the way, I was a lifeguard over the summer. I had long Fabio-type hair. <laughs> Come back to me. Come back to me. And, and it's just so, it's just such an amazing thing because Sonny was that, now he, he lived life to the full. He was never bored. He was always, you know, doing something, serving somebody, caring for, for somebody. He loves God and he loves people and he loves Narnia. He's an incredible artist. He's a great musician. He's actually a Grammy winning songwriter and singer. And so he just had all of this stuff. And I just want to tell you, Overlake, that when I finally did bend the knee to Jesus and give my heart to Jesus. Part of it was I was overwhelmed by the love of God, undone by God's love. But part of it, a big part of it, was I wanted to be on Sonny's team. I wanted to live my life like Sonny was living his. Wherever it was that Sonny was going, that's where I wanted to go to. And so I I have never, in 12 years of being at Overlake, I have never introduced someone to you just because I love them. So I'm long overdue. And I want to introduce Sonny to you uh, just because I, I love him. And I know that you're going to love him too. And, and so, uh, Overlake, would you please give him a warm Overlake welcome as, as we say hello to Sonny. Truly a pleasure and a delight to be here with you at Overlake today. And um, sorry my wife can't be here to be with Michael and his family and with all of you. Um, across the years of our career in youth ministry, uh, we've known thousands of kids and loved them all, I believe I can say, but there can't help but be a few special favorites. And I'd have to say that your pastor's right up there at the top of the list. And we're so proud of him and uh, his lovely family and his ministry here with you. And uh, in fact, my, Lin my Linda sends her love to them and to, uh, greetings to all of you. We just celebrated our 57th wedding anniversary. And uh, lucky me. And um, Michael has requested uh, that I would uh, share our little song this morning that fits right in with this uh, powerful sermon. My dad was a fine singer, and uh, during the Second World War, when he was stationed in New England, somebody heard him sing in a church service one morning, and they asked, asked if he would uh, be willing to sing uh, in their choir whenever he was able, and he did that for several years there. And the choir would only be known to some of the more, uh, some, let's say some of the fellow ARP members of myself, as myself, but uh, the choir was called Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. And it was a very fine, world-famous choral organization in those days. After the war, my dad returned to Los Angeles and uh, began his life as a businessman there. But he never failed to take time out once a week. And he would take his children and his tenor guitar, and he would go do a program for uh, in a hospital or a convalescent home or a prison, sometimes in the homes of shut-ins. And the little program included several songs we'd all sing, and my dad loved to tell stories, and he would tell a story or two. His very favorite story of all was a story that I heard him tell hundreds of times, and it was a simple story of prayer called Jim Checkin' In. And um, 
1978, when my dad was dying, uh, I sat by his hospital bed there in Los Angeles and um, decided I'd like to take his story and put it down in the form of a poem and a little ballad. And uh, so I'd like to share that with you now. Jim checking in. A minister passing through his church in the middle of the day decided to stop by the altar and see who had come to pray. Just then the back door opened and a man came down the aisle and the minister noticed that the fellow hadn't shaved for a while, that his coat was kind of shabby and his shirt was worn and frayed and he knelt at the altar for just a minute and he rose and walked away. In the days that followed, the minister watched, and each noontime came, each noontime came this chap. And each time he knelt for just a minute with his lunch pail in his lap. Well, the minister felt his suspicions grow, and with robbery, his main fear, he decided to stop the man and ask him, Hey, uh, what you doing here? Then the old man explained how he worked down the road, and his lunchtime was just half an hour. But he liked to come for a time of prayer where he found new strength and power. But, but, but I stay for a moment only, you see, because uh, the factory's so, so far away, and I just uh, kneel right here and talk to the Lord. Um, this is kind of what I say. I just came again to tell you, Lord, how happy I have been since we found each other's friendship and you took away my sin. Now I don't know much of how to pray, but I think about you every day. So Jesus, this is Jim. Just checking in. Well, the minister felt rather foolish, of course, and he told Jim it was fine. Said it was all right for that old man to come and pray anytime. Jim smiled as his, his thanks as he hurried out the door while the minister turned and knelt down at the altar. He'd never done that before. His cold heart melted and was warmed with love as he met with Jesus there. And his tears, they flowed as he talked with the Lord in prayer. I just came again to tell you, Lord, how happy I have been since we found each other's friendship and you took away my sin. Now I don't know much of how to pray, but I think about you every day. So Jesus, this is Jim, just checking in. One day it was noon and the minister noticed that old Jim hadn't come. A few days more without him there, he began to worry some, so he went to the factory and asked about Jim and learned he was very ill. And the hospital staff was concerned for him, too, but he'd given them quite a thrill. For the week that Jim had been with them had brought such a change in his ward 
His smile and joy were contagious and changed people were his reward. But the head nurse couldn't quite understand how Jim could be so glad when he never got flowers or cards or calls. Not one visitor had he had. So the pastor spent some time by Jim's bed and he shared the nurse's concern that uh, no one had come to show him they cared. He had no one to whom he could turn. Then old Jim looked up and said with a winsome smile, but the nurses are wrong, Pastor. I've had a visitor all the while. Every day, right at noon, comes a very dear friend, you see. And he sits right down and uh, he takes my hand and he leans over and um, he says to me, I just came again to tell you, Jim, how happy I have been since we found each other's friendship and I took away your sin. Now I always love to hear you pray and I think about you every day and so Jim this is Jesus checking in. And I hope we all realize this morning that it doesn't have to be noon. It doesn't have to be at the altar of a church. Anytime, wherever we are, our Lord is dying to talk with us. Let's keep checking in. It makes me cry every time. <laughs> Thank you for loving Sonny, by the way. I, I felt so nervous today. I felt like I was introducing a girlfriend to my parents. <laughs> I really want you to love him. Sonny is, uh, like I said, he's just been a, an incredible part of my faith story, and I'm not alone in thousands and thousands of, of lives, and so I do want to encourage you. He's got a table set up, uh, so on the way out, just give him a hug. He's got some CDs and, and uh, some, some stuff that he's been able to produce and create over the years, and, and then I do want you to know we are having a, a house concert tonight. And Overlake, uh, a lovely Overlake family has opened their wonderful home for us to do a concert. Um, but I, I was told just before the service there are actually only 10 tickets left or so. Um, but you can get those on the, uh, at the table on the way out. And, and please don't punch anyone to get uh, the last ticket. <laughs> but, uh, but thank you for, for loving him. One of the reasons why I love that song is because it perfectly illustrates what we've been talking about today. 
And so often we, we view this idea of loving God just from this human point of view and our frailty and our failing and, and just what we can offer. And, and it's just a beautiful picture that God loves us. He's the one who initiates. He's the one who starts it. He's the one who pursues us. He's the one who offers us grace. And when you think about these realities that you're created in love and pursued in love and, and that you've received his grace, he's lavished his unfailing and everlasting love over you and you experience his pleasure, then friends, how can we help but just respond? How can we help but just respond with who we are, with, with what we have, with what we say? And so, yes, the Bible talks about the fact that we're, we're called to love God and we're commanded to love God and we're created to love God. But I would just flip the whole conversation upside down and simply say, yeah, but what an honor it is to love God. It's not duty. It's just a privilege to respond to his love by loving him back. There's one last verse that I put on your outline, and it's from the New Living, from Exodus 34. It says, he is a God who is passionate about his relationship with you. So why don't we pray? And we just tell you, Jesus, we recognize your passion for us. We recognize the passion that you went through in your pursuit of us. We recognize that you're the one who loves us with a love that's everlasting. Ours wavers, but yours is unfailing. And Jesus, we just confess that, that we do often. We fall short and, and we waver. Our attention flags, our devotion flags. And, and so we confess these things now. We ask for your help. We just want to live our life in a humble response to your love. So would you show us how? Holy Spirit, fill us up. And let us respond appropriately because we long to be your people, your children, who love God first and best. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm.